0: On today's show, new restrictions brought in for Albertans. Again, as we try to stop the spike, we will hear from the Justice Minister, the Health Minister, the Premier, the Education Minister today. And the Proud Boys are no more in this country. The group has disbanded, claiming they did nothing wrong. Going to switch our focus now to enforcement. And uh, that is, I think, the key component in what we heard yesterday. And uh, some developments on that front already It seems like uh, enforcement certainly will be a focus of the new restrictions that were brought in yesterday. Uh, If you've been following on social media at all, the Whistle Stop Cafe, which is located near Mir, Alberta, uh, they've had some other uh, protests and rallies and things like that, and they had a big one planned for this weekend. Um, to protest the restrictions and things like that. Well, Alberta Health Services has just issued a statement saying, today, Alberta Health Services physically closed the Whistle Stop Cafe in Mir and has prevented access to the building until the operator can demonstrate the ability to comply with the Chief Medical Officer of Health Restrictions and Requirements under Alberta's Public Health Act and Food Regulation. So, the Premier said he was going to be stepping up these... uh, restrictions and the enforcement of them. And it clearly would appear that that is a new focus. Um, The closure order has been issued and the whistle stop has been shut down. So, Interesting development there, and as I said, coming up uh, in about a half an hour from now, the Premier and three of his ministers will be holding a news conference where we can ask more questions about this situation and find out exactly what the plan is around enforcement. Uh, right now, though, we're going to get an idea of just what the legality is around these kinds of laws when you're talking about public health orders and uh, you know health restrictions and things like that, and we haven't seen a lot of enforcement, and there's a lot of talk about why we haven't seen that enforcement, so we're going to try and clear that up a little bit right now. We're going to chat with Dr. Lorraine Hardcastle, who is an assistant professor in the faculty. Faculty of Law at the University of Calgary, with a cross-appointment to the Department of Community Health Sciences in the coming School of Medicine, uh, also a member of the O'Brien Institute for Public Health. Um, Dr. Hardcastle, thank you for joining us this morning. Always appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. So we're seeing now that, um, obviously, uh, enforcement is going to be a focus here. I think it's not a coincidence that AHS moved out this morning to shut down the Whistle Stop Cafe after the announcement we heard last night. Um, Do you expect we'll see more enforcement along these lines with um, AHS getting more involved?
1: I do. I think we'll see AHS getting involved, but I also think that we'll see uh, law enforcement handing out more more fines. Uh, it sounds like, of course, fines are being increased, but mm-hmm. it also sounds like there's some pressure on the government after a, a statement that came out suggesting that the government had indicated to police to uh, not clog the courts with fines. And and there was some anger about that statement. And I think that uh, the pressure as a result of that um, will also uh, lead to more fines. Now,
0: just in terms of the different ways that this can be enforced, because as you said, there's RCMP, there's bylaw officers, there's Alberta Health Services, there's city police officers. There's a bunch of different things here. How does this all break down in terms of trying to enforce these restrictions? Whose jurisdiction is it?
1: Well, they- thing Uh, we saw a bunch of finger pointing before where uh, particularly with grace life church where the rcmp said they were waiting for ahs to act and ahs said they were waiting for the rcmp to act but the fact of the matter is that both could have acted all along both had um had had powers the ahs is empowered under the public health act to conduct enforcement activities and by the same token of course the rcmp is is empowered um, to enforce almost any law. And so they, too, could have been uh, issuing uh, tickets or fines or those sorts of things as well. And so both have jurisdiction um, to to issue fines. And then if you're in the city, then, of course, bylaw officers um, also have, have jurisdiction to issue fines. So so there's a lot of different people who can do enforcement activities.
0: Um, and as you said, it was kind of a really strange situation because we heard from, I know, the mayor of Lethbridge and um, the chief of police in Calgary. They know that the laws were brought in, but then we heard reports that they were told by the province, hey, don't write too many of these tickets because we don't want to clog up the court. So basically, this enforcement procedure um, was cutting itself off at the knees before it even got started.
1: That's right. And and I think we heard from Mayor Nenshi that he was disappointed to have heard that. And I think there, there was also some disappointment from some members of the public as well around this idea that these rule breakers have been blatantly breaking the rules, yet there have been so few, so few fines. I think the number of fines under the Public Health Act right now is, is just under 600 mm-hmm. in total over the entire pandemic.
0: We've also heard about follow-up, the Premier talking about if you ignore these fines or you don't pay these fines, they're going to go through registry services, like much like they do with traffic tickets. What's the legality around that? Is that? I mean, how does that work? They can just go ahead and say you can't have a driver's license until you've paid your fines? Is it just like a traffic violation?
1: That's right. They can do that. Um, I, I haven't heard of any other jurisdictions doing that, so it was a, a surprising move, but certainly one that can be done. And, and um, it was expected that some people were planning on not paying those fines, and so it's a, a good way to incentivize them to do that. Um, so, so yeah, no, certainly, certainly surprising, but certainly also legal.
0: Um, a lot of people saying, well, the reason they're not writing these tickets is because they would never hold up in court. Um, in yeah. terms of the legality of these restrictions and the enforcement of them... Um, is that true? I mean, are these legally binding rules that have been set in place and they would hold up in court or is there, you know, um, is, is are people right in saying, well, they're not writing the tickets because they'd never hold up in court anyway?
1: Yeah, I think that's un- that's unfortunate that that, um, that discourse is going around and, and certainly it's a very common sentiment that's going around. And where it stems from is the fact that uh, prosecutors are actually deciding not to proceed with a number of these tickets. And it's not really clear why, Um, in some cases, there may not be adequate evidence, um, but it's not clear why prosecutors haven't gone ahead with a number of tickets. By the same token, though, many are still in the courts. So there are many tickets still in the courts, and until those tickets are resolved, it it certainly can't be claimed that... um, that people aren't paying fines or that they're getting thrown out. The number right now is that 12% of the tickets that have been issued have already been, um, been have been paid either because a judge ordered them to be paid or because the person voluntarily paid. Uh, but another about 38% is still winding its way through the courts. Um, and it's actually a very small percentage that have been dismissed or thrown out by the court.
0: Okay. That that's good to know. Um, it, it would appear to me, and I think a lot of people have been saying this and saying this is the approach that should be taken. Um, like, the, you know, the Whistle Stop Cafe in Mir had, had a protest plan for this weekend. Um, AHS moving to shut it down before it even starts. Like, I don't know if going down to the Bowdoin Rodeo and trying to hand out two, three, four thousand $4,000 fines is a reasonable way of handling this. But focusing on, you know, the organizers or or the places where this is being done seems to be a better course of action. And maybe we're seeing that being played out today.
1: So I think that if you go down and try to hand out tickets or try to break something up, I think there's always a risk of things escalating or becoming violent. And certainly at the and Rodeo, uh, it's my understanding that there were only two RCMP officers there, yeah. and so you know they can't they they can't put themselves um, in in harm's way. Uh, and so I think you're right. I think the way of doing this is to stop these events from happening in the first place i think that's safer for everybody it's safer for law enforcement but it's also safer for attendees uh, because if you go and they're already gathered there then the public health risks um, are already occurring
2: yeah
0: it's going to be an interesting uh, couple of weeks here in the province of alberta no doubt about it thank you so much for your time this morning and giving us a little insight into how all this works
1: yeah, thank you for having
0: me. Yeah, you bet we'll do it again. Thanks very much. That is Dr. Lorraine Hardcastle, who is an assistant professor in the Faculty of Law at the University of Calgary. As you know, the Premier announcing a new suite of restrictions for Albertans to be living under over the next few weeks. This morning, he is holding a news conference with the Justice Minister, the Education Minister, and the Health Minister to talk more about the restrictions and take questions from the media. Let's join that lounge live. Well good morning.
3: Uh, Last night I announced uh, new mandatory province-wide restrictions necessary to keep our hospitals from being overwhelmed. Today we're here uh, to review the details of these measures and announce a big and very exciting step forward in our vaccine rollout. The restrictions that I announced last night are they are tough, uh, but they are absolutely necessary to stop the spike of the third wave of COVID-19 and to ease the strain on our overburdened healthcare system we must act to bend the curve down one last time. Minister Chandra will provide a recap on those restrictions shortly. The good news is that we have vaccines on our side. As I said last night, they're already working wonders and they're finally arriving in larger volumes, larger doses. Today, I am pleased to announce that by this coming Monday, every single Albertan over the age of 12 will be eligible to receive a COVID-19 vaccine. This reflects late-breaking news this morning from Health Canada that the Pfizer vaccine is safe for children at 12 years of age and older, which is obviously great news. This is a major milestone in our vaccine rollout and it comes right when we need it most. When vaccines started trickling into Alberta just before Christmas, We had this day in mind Uh, the day that we knew we could become begin vaccinating pretty much everyone. It's been a long road and I want to thank Albertans for their patience. While we know that every single person can benefit from this vaccine, our priority has always been protecting those at highest risk first. Now that those at the highest risk of experiencing severe outcomes from the virus uh, have had the opportunity to receive their first dose, we can offer a vaccine to all Albertans. We're doing this in two steps to avoid overloading our booking system. We'll begin by opening up vaccine bookings to all Albertans age 30 and older. And starting tomorrow, Albertans born in 1991 or earlier will be able to book their appointments through AHS or pharmacies across the province. Then on Monday, the 10th of May, we'll open up bookings to the remaining folks in phase three from ages 12 to 29 or those born between 2009 and uh, 1992. Again, we are staggering this phase into two age groups just to protect the booking system and to so it doesn't get overwhelmed and minimize frustration of Albertans who've been patiently waiting uh, their turn to roll up their sleeve for their first dose because if we have upwards of a couple of million people trying to book at the same time obviously that would create a lot of frustration with this another 1.3 million Albertans are now eligible for the vaccine outside of the northern territories Alberta is the first province to offer vaccine to everybody 12 12 years of age and older uh, no matter where they live or what medical conditions they might have This is a testament to the efficiency of our vaccine program and Alberta's determination to get vaccines into the arms of people as quick as we can. If we receive the supply that we've been promised, we expect to complete this entire phase by the end of June and hopefully sooner than that. This will go a long way to boosting the level of protection for every Albertan choosing to be immunized. Many people who have made significant sacrifices throughout the pandemic will now get their turn. And I'm hopeful that by making COVID-19 vaccines available to everyone 12 years of age and older, we'll see a high uptake from everyone right across the province. By booking an appointment and rolling up your sleeve to get a COVID-19 vaccine, uh, you take us one step closer to that reality. I want to close by thanking the thousands of people who are working day in and day out on the rollout of the vaccines. Despite the supply challenges and setbacks that we faced, our teams at uh, the Department of Health, Alberta Health Services, Physician and Pharmacy Partners, and our Provincial COVID nineteen vaccine task force, well, they've all developed and implemented an efficient, effective, and scalable model to get doses into the arms of people as quick as possible. I also and community pharmacies who are the face of this program. From the people who are booking appointments and administering the vaccines, to those completing every task in between, thank you. Uh, you are, we are grateful for your efforts in protecting Albertans uh, from the pandemic. Together, we will get through this. If we follow the uh, public health measures that are in place, and we get all get vaccinated as soon as we can. Thank you. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to Minister Shandro to talk about the additional public health measures. And uh, I believe we'll also be joined uh, by Minister Madhu to talk about additional enforcement measures. Uh, And I believe as well, Minister LaGrange to talk about uh, the difficult decisions with respect to
4: uh, in-classroom instruction. Uh, Thank you and uh, good morning, everyone. I'd like to begin my remarks this morning by acknowledging the death of an Albertan due to a rare blood clotting condition that is uh, linked to the AstraZeneca vaccine. Uh, My, my thoughts are with the patient's family and all of her loved ones. It's a, a tragedy for them. And I realize that it may be a shock to anyone who is who has been vaccinated or is thinking about it. So because of that, it's important to be clear that this does not change the relative risks of vaccination, or the message that people need to get vaccinated. And with the risks from COVID as high as they currently are, the best vaccine is the one that's available right now to anyone and everyone who is eligible. I should also note that that there are risks um, of blood clots when contracting COVID, and those risks are higher than the risk from a blood clot from a recombinant vaccine like the COVID shield or AstraZeneca vaccines. Now, I, I realize that people may have questions, so if you do, please talk to a doctor or other healthcare professional. It's your decision, just like it was my own when I received the AstraZeneca vaccine. But I hope, I expect that people will decide that it's the right choice for them. I'd now like to provide a, a quick recap on the new restrictions that Premier was um, just now speaking about. These measures, many of which take effect today, are tough. And they are absolutely necessary. We need to get this wave of COVID cases under control once and for all and ease the strain on our healthcare system. As Premier said last night, we've seen cases rise significantly in recent days. And last week, we set a record for ICU admissions. On March 5th, which is just two months ago, we had about 4,700 active cases. Today, there are almost 24,000. We know that hospital capacity will get even more strained in the next few weeks. We need to take action to bend the curve back down one last time. And that's why, except for a few areas with very low transmission in the province, all outside social gatherings are now limited to five people or less. Indoor social gatherings are still prohibited. All post-secondary institutions are going online only. Funeral services are limited to 10 people, including participants and guests. Receptions remain prohibited. All indoor fitness is prohibited, and all, as I said, all post-secondary institutions will go online only. Any workplace where a transmission leads to three or more cases will also be required to close for 10 days, except for situations where closure would be against the public interest. All K-12 schools province-wide will shift to online learning from May 7th through to the 25th. And uh, as Premier said, our colleague, the uh, Minister of Education, Minister LaGrange, will have more to say on that in a moment. And starting at 11.59 p.m. on Sunday, Patio and outdoor dining must stop at all restaurants, all bars, and all cafes. All personal wellness services, and that includes hair salons, barbers, and estheticians must also close. All outdoor sports and recreation will also be prohibited, except with members of your own household, or if you are someone who lives alone, your two close contacts. Now these measures apply to any region or community, except for those with fewer than 50 cases per 100,000 people and fewer than 30 total active cases. For those few communities throughout the province, they will revert back to step zero restrictions. So they will have more restrictions imposed on them as well, but fewer than the other ones that I previously announced. Now in these communities, In these areas, schools will still shift to online learning and patios must still close on Sunday evening. Indoor fitness and youth sport or performance activities must also stop. However, they will be allowed to have gatherings of up to 10 people outdoors, up to 20 people at funerals and continue offering haircuts and other personal and wellness services by appointment only. Now, all of these new restrictions will be in place for at least three weeks, except for schools and they will work. We bent the curve in December and we can bend it one last time again here in Alberta. Combined with the massive expansion of our vaccine rollout, that premier just announced, these measures will help us bend down the curve and get to the end of the pandemic. I know that Albertans are tired including everyone who's followed the rules and worked to stop the spread. But if we all work together to embrace these restrictions, we will get this final wave of COVID under control. So thank you, thank you to all Albertans for doing your part in the weeks ahead. I'll now invite Minister LaGrange to provide more information on the shift to online learning.
0: Health Minister Tyler Shandro following up comments from the Premier talking about the new restrictions that were brought in yesterday. We're going to squeeze in a quick break while the Education Minister gets prepared to make her comments. We'll be back with that right after this. All right, listening in to the news conference today with the Premier and three of his Ministers. Up now we have Education Minister Adriana LaGrange.
2: Thank you and good morning, everyone. As you know, yesterday we announced that all kindergarten to grade 12 students will move to at-home learning starting this Friday, May 7th. They will return to school after the long weekend on May 25th. This is for all students across the province, regardless of whether they are in a hotspot region or not. I know this is very difficult news to hear for many students, for many parents, for teachers and for other staff. Over the last week or so, we have been seeing an increasing number of COVID cases in the province, which is reflected within our schools. Over the last 10 days in particular, the last four days, the number of students and staff quarantining, shortages of substitute teachers, and requests from schools to shift to at-home learning have all increased substantially. We had all hoped that this type of a shift was behind us however we must take on one more reset to stop the spike and protect our health care system i want to be clear that schools remain safe places for learning and we will get all and we will all get back to in-class learning as soon as it is absolutely possible however the operational stresses on the education system need to be addressed given that provincial community spread continues to climb and we know that cases in schools are a further reflection of what is happening in our community. While difficult, there are some positives to this shift. It will help minimize the learning loss that's been happening due to the absences from COVID positive cases and the requiring uh, quarantining that has to take place after that. It will also help our older students who are working to meet academic requirements for post-secondary education by minimizing their moves from in-class to quarantine. This approach also means consistency throughout the province and minimizes confusion for parents across various regions. And it also allows our teachers and support staff to access vaccinations that were announced earlier this week and the expansion that we've heard just today. I would also like to highlight that exceptions will continue to be available for students with disabilities so that they can continue to attend in-person classes similar to what has occurred before. To be clear about at-home learning, it is just that, learning at home. School divisions will work with their families to ensure that learning will continue and that the needs of their students are met. We know that at-home learning is especially difficult for younger students and we do not want to overburden families during this difficult time. That is why we are going to ask school divisions to focus instruction on fundamentals like literacy and numeracy for grades K to 6. And for grades 7 to 12, little changes for most students, as many are already learning at home, particularly if they have been in a hot spot region. What will change is their return to classroom date. Learning expectations for grades 7 to 12 will continue to be equivalent to regular in-school classes. I do want to acknowledge the tremendous impact these changes will have on all parents, particularly those with younger children. I understand that this may require adjustments to schedules and creative solutions for some families. I truly hope that this is the last time that we will be in this situation which is another reason why it is so important, so very, very important right now for every Albertan to do their part to stop the spike. I want to end by thanking all teachers, school staff, parents, and of course our students for remaining flexible and for all of their efforts since the very start of this pandemic. While the situation right now is one that no one wants, I am confident This is a temporary shift for our schools and that we all can look forward to coming back to class in a few weeks. And I really want all of our students and our staff to be able to close out this school year in a very strong and positive note. So thank you all and I now turn it over to my colleague Minister Madhu.
5: Thank you and good morning. As my colleagues have explained, Our government's goal throughout this pandemic has been to reduce the risk of COVID-19 transmission and keep our buttons safe, healthy and alive. That mission remains unchanged with the implementation of new measures today. A public health crisis should never be used as an excuse for government to claim new powers or for law enforcement to flex its models indiscriminately. So let me be clear that Alberta's government is not doing either of these things today. Nevertheless, we need concrete action to address the ongoing and escalating threat to public health and, and the strain on our healthcare system being posed by those who continue to defy our efforts to reduce the spread of COVID-19. And while most Albertans have understood this threat, made the personal sacrifices with acts of them and often gone above and beyond to comply with these restrictions. It's become clear that there are a small few who refuse to comply with reasonable and legitimate public health orders. As Minister of Justice and Solicitor General, it troubles me to see the rule of law being eroded in this way. Action must be taken, and action we are taking. First, fines for Public Health Act violations are doubling from $1,000 to $2,000. It reflects the serious risk noncompliance poses to public health and safety. An in council to this effect will be passed as soon as possible. But let me be clear, fines alone will not eradicate the problem of repeat offenders. And so we are also introducing a new enforcement protocol to more effectively target complex and flagrant cases of non-compliance whether an individual organization or business is the culprit this protocol will be used to coordinate a multi-agency response to repeat offenders it will draw upon the expertise of local police services as well as our better health services our better gaming liquor and cannabis our better prosecution service and occupational health and safety Representatives from these agencies will coordinate plans tailored to review and address the particular circumstances of each case of non-compliance. Some cases may require further investigation and some may trigger various enforcement powers, such as fines or revoking of licenses. To be clear, each, each agency will continue to act with its own mandate and the scope of its existing powers. But by sharing information and discussing enforcement actions this way, on top of doubling the fines, that public health orders will be enforced more effectively and consistently than before. This protocol is establishing coordination and accountability between the partner agencies to quickly and effectively resolve incidents. Through it, we establish scope, standards, and roles across the partner agencies. It also strikes a balance between the obligations of each agency to their partners and respective agencies. Enforcement will be done. And our partners will see it being done. Let me close by thanking all law enforcement men and women, and frontline staff across our province, who have worked diligently over the over this period to ensure that we keep Albertans safe. The Proud Boys and what the future
0: of the Proud Boys in Canada may or may not look like. Joining us to provide a little insight, we have Elizabeth Simons, who is the Executive Director of the Canada anti-hate network elizabeth thank you so much for joining us this morning i appreciate your time
6: hi shay thank you for having me
0: yeah okay so let's just sort of um lay the groundwork here the proud boys we've heard a lot about them and, and they were actually started by a canadian guy um, just you know what is the official i don't know designation or the official um characterization of the proud boys what they're all about and why they became such an issue for our federal government
6: yeah, well, so the Proud Boys started uh, by Gavin McInnes, uh, from who used to be with with Vice Media, left there many years ago, um, and then went on to found the Proud Boys uh, a number of years ago. But uh, he started the group with kind of the the intention of of creating kind of like a like a far right fight club, I guess you could say. Like it it, it, right, it, yeah. it, it always kind of. Wrote, it always kind of relied on irony and, and, and jokes, and, and they, they, they tended to really shield or u- use that as a shield against criticism. So whenever they'd be criticized, they'd say, "Oh, well, we're just joking. It's just irony. It's just it's just meant for fun." But over time, it, it became very clear that they were they were absolutely agitators. Um, they they were far right. They would you know pop up at rallies. It would instigate you know physical violence. Um, One of the big stories in Canada was, I think it was in 2017, there's a bunch of Proud Boys in Nova Scotia. They showed up at an Indigenous event, uh, which was protesting, I believe, a statue, and they showed up and and, and caused a lot of disruption and and what have you. And that's really kind of when it started off in in Canada, at least. So the Canadians have always been very... um, There hasn't really been, like, a central leadership structure with with the Canadians, um, unlike the Americans. There are a lot of differences between the American Proud Boys and the Canadians. So the Canadians have always been, you know, each kind of chapter has been its own thing, and they might differ from chapter to chapter. Like, you know, one city might have a different kind of uh, perspective than another city, and and so on and so forth, um, which was different than the U.S., Right. However, um, over time, it became clear that they they were a hate group, and and they they used um, far right politics as kind of an inroad into promoting you know anti Muslim uh, rhetoric, uh, anti women, uh, anti trans, especially they were very much anti trans. So they did they did use their position to kind of um, further uh, some some very some very hate, hateful hateful ideas.
0: And. Uh, so much so that the federal government actually designated them a terrorist group, correct?
6: Yeah, they did. So, it was after the January 6th insurrection at the at the, the Capitol building in D.C., which, of course, as everybody knows, the Proud Boys had quite a hand in. Mm-hmm. Uh, our government felt that they had enough to designate the Proud Boys a terrorist group alongside a couple of other groups, like Adam Lawson Division and Russian Imperial Movement and the base. So, um... You know whether or, you know, regardless of someone's uh, thoughts on on the terror the terror designation listing, uh, it it really is a, a legal concept, and so the, the purpose of it is to make it very difficult to organize. So it's not illegal to be a member, but there would be issues with um, financing, yep. uh, property, travel, you know, things like that. So uh, very shortly after the designation, a number of chapters across Canada did come out and dis- and say we're done. We're we're disbanding, we're, we're leaving, we're over. Um, and then a couple of days ago, the uh, statement came out um, claiming to be from like a Proud Boy elder uh, and, and said that the Proud Boys, like writ large, were done. Yes. What's interesting about that is that there is no national leadership structure. And, and as Global News first reported, there's actually been some backlash in private channels where some of them have said, we don't acknowledge this, this doesn't speak for us. We, we're not listening to this. So there is some friction there in terms of, uh, you know, whether this means pro boys really are done or whether some might, you know, do their own thing.
1: Or move to another group, correct? For them
6: to do. Yeah, some... yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, we, we've always said, you know, what what people need to focus on is movements over groups. You know, hate groups come and go. They sure. rebrand, they change, they break up, they split off. It's really the movement that, that you know, that is, is one to watch. And what we've seen in rec- most, like, it's been, it's been this way for a very long time, but we're, we're really seeing it trending toward this now, is that people are shifting away from the offline formal hate group structure and moving toward, like, really online, loose networks, so that could happen i mean they don't even have to be part right. of a group to be a hate promoted individual
0: yeah and you know elizabeth i know so, that the united states has declared these kinds of groups the biggest threat to domestic security and canada has done something very similar we are identifying that this is probably uh you know the biggest threat facing canadians and americans right now is actually internal it's not yeah. it's not outside forces
5: yeah.
6: absolutely um you know kind of related to the Proud Boys is there actually is a, a chapter, there was a chapter in Ontario, which in 2020 broke off from the larger Proud Boys and started their own uh, kind of network, which they called Canada First. And this particular one, which again, was a Proud Boy chapter, broke off because of an ideological difference. So the regular Proud Boys were not extreme enough for them anymore. Okay. And this group is now you know pro-terror, pro-genocide, uh, you know, it's it, social media channels, which are just absolutely full of, of horrific and brutal violence. And that's kind of what you can see happen. You can see people going, you know, the, you know members of the probably it's not all of them, but many. You can see them going kind of from that, you know, nationalist world, yeah, right wing nationalist. You can see them. You can see the trajectory toward more hardline neo-Nazism. That's not a surprise. That's, that's happening. Uh, you know, we saw it in the States. We've seen it here. And the designation and this supposed dissolution is not going to make them abandon their worldviews. Exactly. It's not really going to change who they are.
0: And they'll just find another place to carry on, as you said. And, and you know, I find it interesting since, since the designation and now since this announcement that they are disbanding, that becomes part of... The recruitment and the motivation for being part of these groups, right? It's an example that they're holding up of the left-wing tyranny, um, shutting them absolutely. down and being authoritarian.
6: Yeah, absolutely. They, they, they're not in the statement. It was very telling. The statement. It, it, it didn't talk about how um, you know they they never took really any kind of ownership or made any amends for what they've done. They just said we're being persecuted. Right. You know, and that's not verbatim, but we're being persecuted by. The leftist tyranny and therefore in order to protect ourselves this is what we have to do. But it's it's meaningless because there is no there is no leadership structure. So we're we're very skeptical about what it what it really means. But you know even even more important is that the Proud Boys in general have really had a decline in the last few years. Like their activity has been next to nothing. You might see a few of them at an anti-lockdown rally, but there may not be there as Proud Boys. Right. Uh, the Manitoba chapter helped to organize an anti-lockdown event last summer, but they're they're really not they're really not as big of an issue here as they are in the states. And so it's going to be interesting to see, from like the terror designation listing perspective, what that how those relationships can be fleshed out, and whether those relationships with the American Pride Boys could end up being problematic for the ones up here.
0: Yeah, and I guess we'll just have to wait and see exactly how this all shapes up, but the the message uh, you yeah. know, underlying here is this is not over, and we don't even know exactly what this announcement means, because there's all kinds of members of the Proud Boys in different chapters saying, and yeah, we're not going anywhere, so
5: this is yeah, the end.
6: Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's, it's not over because they, they don't just stop being hate-promoting individuals. Right. You don't just stop being, you know, um, you know violent far-right extremists. So, whether, I mean, people are talking, you see a lot of chatter online about them rebranding. They don't have to rebrand. They can they can operate as a loose network. They can join an existing group. They can do any number of things. Um, but certainly, it, it doesn't make them go away.
0: Okay, Elizabeth, thank you so much for your time this morning. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. You bet. That's Elizabeth Simons, who is the Executive Director of the Canadian